Section 18 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Second Decade, Chapter 3, The Campaigns of Crecy and Neville's Cross and the Siege of Calais, Part 2. It is not to be supposed that the French commanders were unacquainted with the existence of this ford, but Philip thought that he had effectually provided against the possibility of the English effecting a passage there by sending Godemar du Fay with 12,000 men to occupy the northern approach to the landing place. However, the English army and this French detachment were in very different positions. The latter were standing on the defensive, the former with a fierce enemy and overwhelming force pressing close upon their rear, had but this one chance for liberty and life, to fight their way across the river between two tides. They waited and waited, the apparently interminable hours that the tide was slowly ebbing, in doubt whether the river would become fordable or the French vanguard be upon them first. At length, however, the water fell low enough for fording, and the English men-at-arms plunged into the stream in the face of a shower of bolts from the crossbowmen on the further bank. But the Genoese marksmen were no match for the longbow archers, and were soon driven from their ground by volleys of broadcloth English arrows, while the main body of King Edward's lances advanced under their cover, and encountering the French cavalry in the middle of the stream drove them back some into deep water, and some on the banks, and utterly routed them with a slaughter of two thousand men. Hardly had the English rearguard gained the northern bank when the French army appeared on that which they had left. They even seized a few stragglers belonging to the retreating host who had not kept pace with the rest. But the flood tide was mounting fast, and pursuit was impossible, so the rescued and the baffled army stood exchanging gestures of defiance across the river, till Philip turned his horse and led his forces to Abbeville. He stayed there one day, and then advanced with an army daily swelling by reinforcements in further pursuit of his retreating foe. But now King Edward, having crossed the Somme, stood in Pontieu, his own lawful inheritance through the second wife of his grandfather, King Edward I, and was determined to retreat no further, but to stand at bay and fight. Every day had been bringing him nearer to a junction with his allies, but we hear nothing more of the 40,000 Flemings who had crossed the frontier on the north three weeks before. Still notwithstanding the enormous disparity of force, Edward determined to hazard all upon the issue of a battle. Philip's delay of a day at Abbeville enabled the English king to rest and refresh his men, and deliberately choose an advantageous spot on which to receive the attack of the enemy. He selected a rising ground east of the wood and south of the village of Crecy, between the Mai on the right and Wadicourt on the left. In the evening before the battle, having first taken the utmost care for the comfort of his soldiers during the night, he entertained his chief captains at a great banquet in his tent in the wood, and on their departure entered his oratory and doubtless devoutly prayed, more devoutly than for safety or for life itself, 
that God would preserve his honor on the morrow. At daybreak on an ever-memorable Saturday, August 26, 1346, the King and the Prince of Wales, who was then in his fifteenth year, heard Mass and partook of the sacrament, and the greater part of the army confessed themselves and received absolution. The plan of the engagement was that the army should be divided into three battles. The king was to command the reserve, consisting of seven hundred men-at-arms and two thousand archers, as a forlorn, and take up his position on a hill in the rear, at a spot where a windmill then stood, part of whose massive tower is still to be seen overlooking the plains. The second battalion, commanded by the earls of Arundel and Northampton, consisted of five hundred men-at-arms and twelve hundred bowmen, and were posted on the left of the line, with the archers massed in front of them, and protected on their flank by the river Mai and a deep artificial ditch. The third detachment, consisting of eight hundred men-at-arms, two thousand archers and one thousand Welshmen, under the Prince of Wales, the Earl of Warwick, and Sir John Chandos, occupied the right, they stood a little in advance of the rest, nearly at the bottom of the slope, with the archers in front arranged forty deep and two hundred in breadth, in the form of a hearse or harrow. One historian tells us that in the intervals between these bodies were planted sundry very small bombards, which with fire and a noise like God's thunder threw little balls of iron to frighten the horses. It was determined that the battle should be fought by the English knights and men-at-arms as well as the infantry on foot, and accordingly the horses were sent with the baggage-wagons to a park or entrenched enclosure under the shelter of the wood in the rear. The skill of a general in those days was shown chiefly in the choice of the ground and the disposition of his forces. The battles were for the most part an aggregate of single hand-to-hand -hand combats in which victory depended more on the pluck and bottom of the men themselves than on the skillful handling of troops and the masterly strategical combinations in which such captains as Napoleon delighted. The English king, or his marshals, did their work well before the Battle of Crecy. When the dispositions had been made with all possible forethought and care, and each lord and captain stood under his banner and pennon, the red dragon of Merlin floating over the Welsh contingent, the valorous young king, mounted on a lusty white hobby with a white wand in his hand, rode between his two marshals from rank to rank and from one battalion to another, encouraging every man that day to defend and maintain his right and honor. At daybreak he ordered his soldiers to eat at their ease and drink a cup, after which they sat down in their ranks and waited patiently for the French, with their long bows and helmets lying beside them on the warm grass. Philip passed the night at Abbeville, but as there was not accommodation in the town for his overgrown army, many of the soldiers had to pass the night in the fields, insufficiently provided with food. This was a bad preparation for a march of some six leagues to battle the following morning. As the army advanced, wearied and dispirited, and already in disorder. Some French knights whom Philip had sent forward to reconnoiter the enemy brought him word that they had seen the able disposition and the steady front of the English army, 
and begged him to keep his people where they were for the rest of the day, till all might rest and those behind come up. Otherwise, they said, your people will be tired and your enemies fresh, and be sure they will wait for you. Two marshals were dispatched, one to the front and the other to the rear, crying, Halt, banners, in the name of God and Saint-Denis. But the command was misunderstood or disregarded, and the rear jealously pressed forward upon the van, till all the lanes were choked with men, and discipline was at an end. The French army became a disorganized multitude of wrangling soldiery, which king and captains endeavored vainly by threats and persuasions to reduce to order, as they clashed their swords and shouted, Kill, kill, making sure of an easy prey. And now the English stood up and formed. And when Philip saw them, it stirred his blood, for he hated them. And flinging wide the oriflamme, or great scarlet banner of France, which, like the standard of the prophet among the Turks, was the sign of no quarter. He furiously ordered his fifteen thousand crossbowmen to advance and dislodge them. But the Genoese marksmen were hungry, tired, and out of heart already. And just at this juncture came on a sudden tempest from the west, with thunder and lightning. The sky grew dark, Ravens, thought to be birds of fatal omen, flew screaming over the French army. The rain came down in torrents, drenching and chilling the very soldiers and slackening the strings of their bows. It was, however, no more than a summer storm, and at vespers the sun shone brightly forth, and the crossbowmen were persuaded to advance. But their bowstrings were swelled and stretched, and the level sun shone full in their eyes for they were advancing from the eastward. They set up a loud shout to frighten the English, but the English never moved from their places. Again they shouted, and the third time, very loud and clear, and let fly their arrows. At the best, they were no match for the English archers, who now drew their bows dry and safe from their coverings, and taking one step in advance, poured in their home-drawn shafts so thick and fast that the Genoese fell back discomfited, pierced through their necks and hands with the arrows, and cutting the strings of their bows in their rage and despair. The Genoese were supported by a splendidly accoutred body of horsemen, the flower of the French cavalry, who formed a great hedge behind them, under the command of the Count of Alençon, King Philip's brother. When the crossbowmen fell back, they threw the cavalry into confusion, and Philip, crying out fiercely, Slay me those runaway scoundrels, and his brother, Down with them and let me ride over their bellies against the English. The angry horsemen too readily obeyed, and cut them down by hundreds as they fell back, while the ceaseless storm of English arrows still poured in on this internecine struggle and completed the slaughter of the unfortunate Genoese. And now Sir John of Hainaut gave counsel to the French king that he should retreat, and fight it out another day. But Philip was too much incensed to listen to any prudential advice, and spurred madly through the press of his own soldiers to join the Count of Alençon's division, which, almost uninjured under the protection of their armor, were fighting their way round, through the disorganized masses of their own vanguard, 
to charge the Prince of Wales. At the same moment, the Count of Flanders was struggling through to assail him on the other flank, and a strong body of German and Savoyard knights broke through the line of the archers in his front and split the hearse in two. The second battalion of the English, whose left flank was, as described, unassailable, immediately closed in on the right to support young Edward. But the struggle was long and doubtful, and Arundel and Northampton sent to the king to tell him how the battle was going and to beg him to reinforce the prince. "'Is my son killed?' said the king. "'No,' replied the messenger. "'Is he wounded?' "'No, sire.' "'Then said he, "'Tell those that sent you that he shall have no help from me. "'Let the boy win his spurs.' "'When his answer, long since passed into a proverb, was brought back, "'the slackening fight again grew fierce and furious. "'The prince now charged his assailants "'and drove them back again as they had come "'between the two wings of the broken array of the English archers. "'And the counts of Alençon and Flanders,' and great numbers of the French knights and nobles fell. But young Edward himself was flung to the ground in the melee, and his life barely saved by Richard de Beaumont, bearer of the great banner of Wales, which he flung over the fallen prince till rescued from his assailants. The Welshmen rushed under the bellies of the horses and stabbed them with their long knives and slaughtered the heavily falling riders as they lay helpless in their armor on the ground, for no quarter was the order of the day on both sides. About this time the blind old King John of Bohemia, the son of one emperor and the father of another, asked of a knight who stood by how the battle was going. He was told that the Genoese had given way, that they were slaughtered by the French cavalry, and that his son, the King of the Romans, was burying himself bravely in the thickest of a doubtful fight. Then said he, Lords, you are my vassals, my friends, and my companions. I pray you and beg you that you will lead me so far that I may strike one blow with my sword. So two knights came up, one on each side of him, and each knight took a rein of the king's bridle and fastened it to his own, and thus they rode into the battle. The king struck one blow with his sword, even three, even four, and fought right valiantly. When on the following day they counted the slain, the king and his two knights were found stretched side by side in death, their bridles interlaced, with the rest of his guards lying close around them. Philip, beside himself with rage and grief, forcing his way at length through the struggling masses, joined desperately in the assault in which his brother had already fallen. His horse was killed, and he himself twice wounded, but when the blood was staunched, he remounted and returned into the melee. The battle was already lost. The sacred Oriflamme itself had been beaten down and barely rescued by a gallant French knight, who, while he kept assailants at bay with his sword, stripped the banner from the shaft with his dagger and rode away with it wound about his body. Sir John of Hainaut, meanwhile, seized the bridle of the defeated king and carried him off almost by force, broken-hearted from the battlefield. That night he lay hid in the castle of La Bois, and the next day found refuge within the walls of Amiens. End of section 18